Let's uh, <clears throat> take our Bibles this evening. And I want to go to the book of Luke, chapter 15. And as we've been covering this uh, subject of the family, uh, the Christian home, uh, I wanted to try to hit on some issues that maybe uh, you don't hear dealt with a whole lot. I'm not saying you've never heard them preached or anything like that, but I just, I know that uh, families have a lot of different dynamics. We have a lot of different life stages and things that we face and things that we go through. And oftentimes when we think of the family, our first thought is a husband, wife, children. Um, but obviously that, that stage doesn't last forever. And then comes uh, adult children and grandchildren and things of that nature. And so last week we spent some time talking about parenting uh, adult children and how, how to be a parent to adult children and we uh, address the issue even to some degree of in-laws and, and how that can affect things. And tonight we're going to really kind of stay on that same subject to some degree but maybe dive down a little bit further uh, into one particular aspect and that is parenting prodigal children. What do you do when you're especially and particularly your grown adult children are not living for the Lord, and they're maybe making choices in their lives that are destructive, and maybe even adopting lifestyles that would be contrary to certainly the way that they were raised, or even contrary to morals and, and, and the Christian faith. And, and how do you approach that? What do you do uh, in, in situations when you just cannot endorse a particular decision or lifestyle that your children have chosen and so I want to look at this passage of Scripture. It's very familiar to most of us, this passage of the prodigal son, this parable that Jesus told. And I want to learn some principles from this father, uh, the father of a prodigal. And uh, hopefully we can learn some lessons from that. So if you're in Luke uh, 15, let's stand together as we read, beginning in verse number 11. Jesus here speaking, it says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want." And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, 
and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. And listen to this declaration. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look into this passage of scripture tonight, you would help us to make application I pray that you would just guide my mind and my mouth to speak only the things that you would have me to say. Uh, Lord, help us to see the principles that you would have us to learn tonight. And would you help each of us to be the parents that you want us to be. And I pray for uh, everyone here who has a wayward son or daughter that they no doubt pray for and are heartbroken over. Lord, I pray that you would just help them, strengthen them. Lord, give them comfort and peace, but help them, Lord, to also make decisions that can foster a, really a repentance in the lives of their children. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A couple of things I want to point out to you before we get into the passage tonight. First of all, I want to just make it clear because I am first and foremost a Bible preacher, and because of that, I want to make sure to always be rightly dividing the word of truth. And part of rightly dividing the word of truth is understanding that every passage of Scripture has one interpretation. Now, every passage of Scripture may have multiple potential applications, and there are things that we can glean from it, but the Bible only says one thing as it says it. And in this text, in this passage, I will tell you, this is not primarily a passage that deals with the family. In fact, this is not even primarily, as it's often taught, uh, necessarily a passage on the Lord dealing with his wayward, rebellious children, or even a salvation message. This is primarily a rebuke that the Lord gives to the Pharisees about their unwillingness to have compassion on sinners. And the the Lord is making this comparison between two sons, one that very clearly was wicked and away from the Lord and away from his father, another who had stayed with his father, and yet when there was this reconciliation that took place of the prodigal son, there was a jealousy on the part of the son that had not departed, and that was representative of the fact that you had these Pharisees who considered themselves to be very righteous people, and they were looking down on the publicans and sinners that Jesus was willing to save. And so Jesus is rebuking them for their critical spirit, their lack of love and compassion, and basically identifying them as the real prodigals because there's no repentance in their hearts. That's the primary interpretation of this passage. Now with that primary interpretation, I believe that there is some application that we can make as well because the Lord does use this as an example to show how the Heavenly Father loves and cares for people and is willing to receive them when there is genuine repentance there. As as was true in the case of the publicans and sinners that Jesus often spent his time with, he was always willing to extend a hand and to save them if they would come to him with repentance. And most of the religious crowd of the day ended up dying lost in their sins because they didn't see their own sin. They didn't see their own failures and therefore their need for repentance. And this is what Jesus was getting at here. But in the midst of all of that, we have this wonderful story, this powerful and poetic story of a father 
who has two sons. And one of those sons, very deliberately and very intentionally, in a rebellious spirit and manner, leaves his father and goes in a way that obviously dishonors his father and his family. I want you to know that when Jesus told this story to the ears of ancient Middle Easterners, this was a very, very grievous sin that this son had committed. I want you to notice that it says here in verse number 12, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. We read that as 21st century Americans, and we think this is a, this is a boy who was a little bit uh, anxious and, and got a little ahead of himself and just wanted his inheritance early, and his father went ahead and let him do it. But understand that in the culture of that time, to say to your father, give to me my inheritance while your father was still living was equal to essentially telling your father, you're dead to me. And you mean nothing to me more than what you can provide me in your inheritance. Essentially, I wish you were dead. Why don't you just go ahead and give me my money now? And this, again, uh, uh, according to Old Testament law, this was the absolute act of rebellion and, and, and dishonoring of a father that would have been punishable by death. And in the ears of those who were hearing this, uh, this son had become the absolute villain of the story, and he was worthy of death. In fact, it would have been just for the father to have him killed. So the fact that the father then was willing to show compassion on his son was not only foreign and strange, but to them it was vile. They didn't want this son to be forgiven. After all, he didn't deserve it. And isn't that just the way of the Lord? He gives us grace and mercy that we don't deserve. It would be just and right for God to carry out his judgment upon us. The just wages of our sin truly is death and separation from God in eternal torment. We all deserve that, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm thankful for the ways of the Lord. So we have this wonderful story of a forgiving father. But I want to just point out to you maybe some parallels here tonight between parents and their wayward children. I want to say this also, that if you are here tonight and, and you have grown children that are not living for the Lord, I want you to understand that I am not accusing you of that being your fault. I understand that children make their own choices, people make their own choices, and that's on them. But I also want you to know that I believe scripturally that that's one of the most heartbreaking things that you can deal with, and I understand that there's a great burden involved in that. And so anything I say tonight, please don't take it as accusative, but hopefully instructive as we learn some lessons from the Word of God. How can parents deal with prodigal children? The first thing I want to show you tonight from this passage of Scripture is the father's patient pain. This father who was just essentially not only insulted by his son, but rejected and even to some degree disowned, 
by his son. In verse number 12, that son says to him, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And I want you to notice that it says in verse number 12, he divided unto them his living. When this son rejected his father, what did his father do? But he didn't fight back. He didn't push back. Uh, he didn't say, son, you're not getting a dime from me until I'm dead and gone. He said, okay. He went ahead and he gave that to him. And when we look down and we read what happened, you know the story of what happened. This, this young man went out, he took his inheritance, and he wasted his substance, the Bible says, with riotous living. The idea he was in, involved in all kinds of debauchery and wickedness. The older son later recounts that he had spent this money on harlots. This was the, the type of lifestyle that he had embraced. He goes into this far country, he spends everything he has, and when he had spent everything he had, he found out there was nothing to fall back on. There was no one to fall back on. Verse 14, when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Here, imagine how far this guy has fallen. To go from living in the home and being the, the son of a father who's wealthy and has abundance to now not only being a pig farmer, but again, to the Jews of those days, how degrading, how humiliating, how disgusting would that have been. Notice it says in verse number 16, he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. Notice these words, and no man gave unto him. You see, what you find about this is that there is a son who is rebelled against his father. His father let him go. Imagine the pain not only of having your son forsake you, but then the pain of having to let him go. And not only let him go, but let him go so far that he found himself in a miserable place. To find himself in the lowest of the low, scraping the bottom of the barrel just to get life and sustenance. And I want you to notice verse number 20 gives us some insight. It says, And he arose and came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And this gives me the understanding and the idea that this father was looking for his son to return. He was waiting for him to return. And, and I get this impression that this father was brokenhearted over the, the plight of his son, the relationship with his son that had been severed, and yet he patiently waited in pain. Watching his rebellious son dishonor his name, dishonor his family, watching his rebellious son spend up the substance that he had no doubt worked all of his life, to build up so that he could leave a legacy for the next generations, watching his rebellious son then go through suffering and pain in his own life. And the father patiently waited for his return without interfering in his life. Boy, that had to be a tough thing. That had to be hard and difficult. But I want you to notice that this father, in his patient pain, did not enable his misbehavior. 
He was not participating. How difficult would it be as a loving father to see your son fall so far and not to go seek him out and say, Son, haven't you had enough? Why don't you come home? You got a warm bed. There will be food on the table. I mean, just come on back home. Uh, it would be easy for, for this father to have come in and said, You know what? I, I want to I try and help you here, son. But he didn't do that. It says in verse number 16 that no man gave unto him. And this father had to watch, no doubt from a distance, but, but watch his son face these consequences of his sin, and he refused to get involved. He refused to fix the problem. I mentioned last week that we need to be careful not to get in the way of the chastening hand of the Lord. I want to go over to the book of Hebrews, if you would, with me tonight. Hebrews chapter number 12. Hebrews 12 deals with the subject of the chastening of the Lord. In verse number 11, look at what it says here. It says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward... It yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. There was a time in my life where I was away from the Lord. You know my testimony and how the Lord got a hold of me. And I will tell you this. For all those years that the Lord was working on me, there was a period of time for about a year to, an, uh, to a year and a half leading up to getting right with God that I went through some really miserable days. I was miserable in my relationship with the Lord because it was almost non-existent. I was miserable in my beliefs because I was so shaken I didn't even know what I believed anymore. I was frustrated and angry at people that I felt had wronged me even though it was my own sin that had led me to the place where I was. And I would have loved to have been delivered from my circumstances. But I'm thankful that God put me through some chastening. Because it was those things that God used to bring me to a point of brokenness and repentance before Him. The chastening of the Lord in the present, in the moment, is not a joyful thing. It's not something that we enjoy going through, and any loving parent certainly hates to see their child suffer. It's a grievous thing. However, it says that the chastening of the Lord afterward yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Therefore, to get in the way of the chastening hand of the Lord is actually to try to spare your child from the outcome that the Lord is trying to bring in their life. And we don't want to do that. I've used the example before, and, and I've seen it, maybe you've seen it, where um, this is kind of a different example, but maybe someone is, is disciplined out of a church because of sin, because of issues going on, that they uh, just unre unrepentant sin in their lives, and they're put out from the church. And the Bible says that when that happens, that they are to be treated as a heathen and a public, and they're to be separated. We're, we don't fellowship with them. We don't maintain fellowship. But I've seen 
I've seen situations, maybe you have too, someone's put out from the church because of unrepentant sin in their life, and their friends within the church feel sorry for them. And so they kind of come alongside of them and coddle them and try to maintain a relationship there. And I, I've really, I understand it, but I've, I've thought about this. You know, one of the issues, one of the purposes of church discipline is to actually disfellowship with someone and to allow them to feel the pain of not having that fellowship. Because part of that, listen, if you're a child of God, you ought to love the fellowship of the brethren. You ought to love God's people and and enjoy being around them. And when you don't have that anymore, there should be something missing. And that's actually something that the Lord uses to bring about repentance in their life. But if you try to circumvent that and ease the pain of that, you're kind of getting in the way of the chastening hand of the Lord. And I I, I look at it like this. I, I use this illustration sometimes. Let's say there's a family that's sitting around the, the dinner table. And there's a father and a mother and a son and a daughter. And the son and the daughter are very close. They're good friends. The mother says something to the son. Son, uh, uh, don't put your elbows on the table. And rather than a respectful, obedient response, he kind of rolls his eyes and gives a little bit of an attitude and just kind of huffs and puffs. And so dad says, son, you don't treat your mother that way. You're going to bed without dinner. He sends him upstairs to his bedroom. The purpose of that punishment is you're not in fellowship with the family. You're going to bed with a hungry stomach. And hopefully next time you learn to treat your mother with more respect. But the sister feels bad for her brother being hungry. and So she, after dinner, offers to clear the table and sneaks some leftovers onto a plate, sneaks up to her brother's bedroom and sits there with him for a half an hour or 45 minutes while he eats his food and they talk and enjoy each other's company before she then goes off to bed. What has that daughter done in that situation? Essentially, she has said, Dad's the bad guy, he doesn't understand. And I actually care about you. And so, I want you to know I love you, but Dad and Mom don't really love you. That's the message that gets sent. Right? Think about this, parent of a prodigal. If you get in the way of the chastening hand of the Lord, the message that you're sending is essentially the same. I love you, but God doesn't really. Now, you may not try to say that. In fact, that might be the very opposite of what you're trying to communicate, but that's essentially what you're saying. God's the bad guy here, and I'm trying to shield you from some of the consequences that you've brought upon yourself. I'm thankful that in this example in Luke, this father did not do that. No man gave unto this young man, not even his father. He was willing to let him suffer the consequences of his choices. Go with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. 2 Corinthians 7, verse number 8. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, Paul refers to the previous letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, and he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. 
though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. What's he saying? I'm not sorry that I sent you the letter that I did. Even though when I sent it, I was sorry I did it. <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want to have to do that. But I'm glad I did. Verse number 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. What's he saying? I'm glad that I gave you a painful rebuke because God used that to bring about genuine godly sorrow which brought you to a place of repentance. Then the next verse, look what it says. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all these things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Not only did these people come to a point of brokenness and sorrow over their sin, but they actually sorrowed to the point that there was genuine repentance, which brought about real change in their life. And now they have been thoroughly dealt with to the point where now they have this carefulness. They don't want to go that way anymore. They have this indignation. There is actually a hatred of what they used to do. There's a fear. There's a fear of God in them. We don't want to go that way anymore. We're afraid of the consequences of that. What vehement desire. It, it brought within them a passion for obedience to the Lord. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. I mean, they're actually now living in a way as to make up for lost time. He says, in all these things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You've been thoroughly dealt with by God, and I'm thankful that that which was difficult for a time brought about a thorough, genuine repentance in your life. Is that not what we would want to see in a wayward child? Not just a, well, they're doing a little bit better. They're starting to go to church a little bit more, but a, a clear, genuine repentance that says, Lord, we don't want to do that anymore. And only God can do that. And so this father, apparently in his wisdom that God had given to him, patiently, though heartbroken over his son's condition, waited for God to get a hold of his son. Then I want to show you the kind of the son's side of this and his son's penance, <laughs> And, or penitence here. Look what it says in verse number uh, 14. It says, When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. He began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And I love these words. Verse 17. And when he came to himself, the idea is, in all the previous verses, he was kind of out of his mind. <laughs> he wasn't thinking clearly. But God has brought him so low that now he's going to wake up. 
And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. He was brought so low that he was truly repentant. He came to himself. He confessed his sin to his father. He was willing to take a lowly position. His request to his father was not that he would be restored to his place of sonship or his position within the home, but, Dad, would you just make me like one of your servants? Here I was living in your house, and I thought the world had all these things to offer, and I thought I had it bad at home as your son. Now I see our servants had it better than I did out in the world. Can I just be one of them? There was no arrogance. There was no pride here. He was thoroughly humbled and thoroughly repentant. By the way, true repentance never can include pride or expectation or entitlement. True repentance comes with humility and brokenness. And I want you to notice here that this son, this is very important, He said in verse number 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. He said the same thing in verse number 21. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. I find it interesting that he had rehearsed the speech that he was going to give to his father. And I believe the reason he rehearsed this speech was not only because he knew that he didn't deserve to be restored to fellowship with his father, but I think he had this idea that he probably would be rejected by his father if things weren't done just right. I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say it just like this in hopes that maybe he'll have mercy on me and let me be his servant. Now, I don't know why this is. I think it has to do with a guilty conscience. But most of the time, prodigals see themselves as cut off from the rest of the family, even though it wasn't the family that cut them off. Whose choice was it to leave dad's house? His father didn't kick him out. He left. And yet now he comes to this place where he almost has this idea, dad will never take me back. I don't know why that is, but oftentimes wayward children feel rejected by their parents and by their family when the rejection actually came from the other side. And here this son feels like, and certainly he was correct when he said, I'm not worthy to be called thy son, but the father had certainly never done anything as far as I can read here to show that he was unwilling to receive him. But it was just assumed. After all, I've made such a mess of things. I know how, what dad believes. I know how dad thinks. I know how I was raised. And I don't deserve to be received again. Therefore, in his mind, he probably won't be willing to receive me as his son. Maybe I can plead to be one of his servants. But, notice that this father showed love and compassion even before the father saw repentance. Verse number 20, he arose and came to his father. And he, when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him 
and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son never had to say anything for his father to show his acceptance and love. Can I say to you, parents of wayward children, your wayward children may distance themselves from you because of a guilty conscience, and you need to let them feel the the pressure that God puts on them, but you should also reaffirm your love to them. They, they should never feel, because of your actions, they should never feel as though they are unloved or that there's no compassion. The father did not wait for an apology from his son before he made sure and reaffirmed his love toward him. This son was not treated poorly by his dad. He wasn't badgered by him. When he was in rebellion, he simply was left. To do as he had set out to do. When he came home, his father made sure to reaffirm his love toward him. I want to be clear though, love and compassion was shown immediately. But restoration didn't take place until repentance took place. Verse 21, and the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Before he can finish his speech, though, notice this. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Immediately, Upon seeing his son's repentance, his son was restored not only to a position of acceptance, but to a position of honor. I don't get the impression that this son was going to be considered a second-class citizen in his dad's house anymore. No, his, his father said, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet. This is, this is a, an expression, put a robe on him, the best robe. This is an expression of honoring. He was, he was not, in other words, it wasn't like, okay, we're going to receive you back, but you'll always be viewed as the black sheep of the family. It was clear when there was repentance, there was restoration, and he was every bit as much his son as he had ever been. But that restoration didn't take place until that repentance was expressed. And I do believe it's important for us to remember, even with God, there's always an opportunity to come to Him, to be restored to fellowship. But that restoration won't take place until there's repentance. And while we ought to always show love and always show compassion and never try to distance ourselves from our children The reality is that relationships that are hindered and broken by sin cannot be restored until there is repentance. And so here this father makes this great party to welcome his son home. And he he, he says this. I want you to notice this in verse 24 because I think this is so 
important and should be encouraging to all parents of wayward children. He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He says, my son was dead. He's not saying he was dead to me like I disowned him. But what he's saying is that in his rebellion, the grief was every bit as much as losing him to death. It was like my son was dead. But notice he says he's alive again. There is hope, even for prodigal children. As long as they are living, God's not done with them. And neither should you be. Don't give up hope. They're alive again. He was alive again. Verse 32, he says to his other son, It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. No one is ever too far gone for God to save them and change them and bring them to repentance. And parents of prodigals, can I encourage you, take heart. God's not done with your kids yet. Make it your priority to pray for them. Believing that God can get a hold of them. Don't distance yourself from them. Understand their sin might distance them from you. But don't distance yourself from them. Show them love. Show them compassion. But don't get in the way of God's chastening in their life. Don't enable them. Don't make life easy on them. But let them know that as soon as they're ready to come home, that they'll have a place. That you love them, that you care about them. I'm thankful that God is always willing to restore. I'm thankful that when I was His wayward son, that He loved me enough, not only to bring me back to Himself, but when I got right with Him, I was accepted just as I was. I didn't have to go about proving myself. There was no probationary period. I was his, and he was mine, and fellowship was restored. I just want to encourage you parents, pray for your kids, love them, let them know that you love them, and let God work in their lives. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer.